Well, I think while we are waiting for everybody who would like to join us to do so, I will say a few words about our seminars on women's rights in the Middle East, which um, started in 2009, for those of you who don't know these uh, seminars. And the idea was to actually find out more about what recent research is going on, contemporary research in relation to women's rights in the Middle East, as opposed to just repeating what we already know about women's rights in the Middle East, because a lot of things have changed. And as part of that, we also have included um, the Middle Easterns in the diaspora or from the Muslim world in widely. And the other aspect which we have also covered is a question of looking also at some historical context as well as contemporary one, to give it actually a proper framework to what in the past has been some women who had probably been activists in the field of Muslim women's rights. So we are now, since 2000, now we're in the 11th year of doing so. And it is a particularly great pleasure for me to introduce our speaker today, Benjamin Dubrul, who's currently a PhD candidate in sociology at the School of Advanced Studies in Social Sciences in Paris. He's also a member of the Center for Studies in Social Sciences and Religion at the CNRS, which is the Centre National de la Recherche Scientifique, Center for Studies in Social Sciences of Religion, modern Frances. In, and, and he's currently, currently a member of Maison Française in Oxford. Benjamin Dubrul is also a member of the Jewish Muslim Research Network. Benjamin's research is mainly situated in this intersection of social sciences, of religion, gender studies, and queer studies. And it is um, looking at the initiatives designed by Muslim communities themselves to promote gender equality within an Islamic framework. And he also has got a particular interest in democracy and secularism and the way politics impact on lived experiences of Muslim minorities on the ground. And his presentation today is of particular interest also to me especially because this is an issue which has actually been very, addressed very little. I don't know of very many similar studies of how you're looking at the context of the mosque, the queer studies, and, and a comparison between France and the UK. So the title of Benjamin's presentation is God Does Not Discriminate Inclusive Mosques Politics in France and the United Kingdom. Benjamin, please go ahead. You have got 45 minutes. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Saraya. Thanks for allowing me to be part of this and to today. I will just share my PowerPoint. So now you should see my slides. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Perfect. So, yes. Thank you, everybody, for, for attending this seminar. This study that I'm presenting today is part of my ongoing research on practices of inclusion and care by and for queer Muslims groups in both France and the United Kingdom which is a study that started in 2018. It relies on ethnographic data collected during moments of participant observation during social and religious events organized in inclusive mosques 
and queer Muslim organizations. And uh, there is also semi-structured interviews uh, with religious leaders and organization members. I am especially interested in feminist ethics of care, as theorized by John Tronto and Evelyn Nakamoglen. Beyond the secular approach to care, I research how care can be performed in a religious framework in contemporary Muslim communities, in line with what the South African scholar John Klassin uh, has theorized as pastoral care. And as Janet Julie argued, in light of the Islamic ethics of justice, there are political solidarities to be built between secular feminists and Muslim communities to emphasize the role of care as necessary to a sustainable and flourishing society. So this, is, this would be my theoretical framework. Today, I want to focus on two inclusive mosques, uh, one in France and one in the United Kingdom, and how they approach care. By inclusive mosque, I mean a mosque welcoming believers in mixed congregations, regardless of their gender, sexuality, ethnicity, or even social stages. Uh, these spaces especially care for Muslim marginalized within the larger Muslim community. There are a few more inclusive spaces in each country, in France and the United Kingdom, but these are the two most popular spaces so far these last few years. Uh, they are both run by women, and interestingly, these women all aimed at responding to the needs expressed by their religious community. So similarly to Turkish women in the Women in Mosque movement that Mina talked about uh, during our last seminar, these women witnessed and experienced themselves inequalities of access to religious spaces. They find the women's room of their mosque often dirty, difficult to access. Uh, they experience or know women who experience difficulty to engage in religious rituals and to connect with the divine because of a lack of appropriate facilities. And because the women's room are often at the end of a set of stairs, elderly women and disabled women have difficulties to access these spaces especially. So it's because of all these difficulties uh, that uh, these spaces have been created in the first, in, in the first place. So this is a really important dimension of this mosque. They emerge from a sense of responsibility shared by Muslim women to accommodate and care for marginalized Muslims, for women, but also for other groups. And in that sense, these women have the same rationale as more conservative Muslim women. I am thinking of ethnographic studies conducted by Janet Jouili uh, in France and Germany, or Saria Contractor in the United Kingdom, on uh, Orthodox Muslim women groups who were skeptical of feminism and focused, preferred to focus on their role, on the role they could play for their community, on their duties rather than their individual rights. And in each case, for both feminist groups and more orthodox uh, group of women, it's a sense of responsibility which tr always triggers their action. So we're going to now look at the pastoral care developed for queer Muslim women especially? Yes? I'm so sorry to interrupt you. I meant to ask people, please ask your questions as we go along, so we can then address them after that's finished. Sorry, Benjamin, I have not mentioned this. Please go ahead. No, no, no. 
So yes, I, as I was saying, we're going to look at the pastoral care developed, especially for promising women in the mosque. Just to be specific, as a lot of people may know here, the word queer used to be an insult against people perceived as sexually deviant uh, in English, which has since been reappropriated by sexual minorities now globally. It is mainly used in English-speaking context. So in France, women would tend to use other words to define themselves, such as lesbian or transgender. But in the UK, the word queer is quite popular among Muslim women. And I think especially because it does not refer to a, a particular gender or sexuality. It enables women to define themselves outside of a heteronormative framework while remaining unspecific about their body, about their gender, about their sexuality. And as such, I think it resonates with an Islamic value of modesty. So in this presentation, I will remain unspecific on purpose when it comes to the name of the participants, uh, the name of the organizations involved, and the geographical location, so as to protect the participants' privacy. Uh, these two mosques are both inclusive, but they have a slightly different ethos. I'm going to develop that idea later on, but first, I just want to give you a bit of background on the history of this mosque. So the in inclusive mosque in France emerged from a small community locally, uh, which has progressively been building up on social media through a Facebook page. The two founders are two heterosexual women who used to go to another inclusive mosque, which had been founded by a gay imam in Paris in 2010. This first mosque has since been closed, and these women then opened their own inclusive mosque in September 2019. So while comparing these two mosques, we need to keep in mind that the French mosque is actually a young mosque. It's a very recent project. In the United Kingdom, the women had more time to adapt their practices and to, you know, get feedback from their congregation. So the Inclusive Mosque in London has been founded in 2012 by a group of queer Muslim women who were previously involved in a LGBT Muslim organization and which were also uh, involved in academic research projects regarding the needs of queer Muslim women in the United Kingdom. Finding that most resources online and in real life were mainly aimed at men, at queer Muslim men, and that there was a need for more inclusive space for vulnerable Muslim women, they created a mosque based on the principle of radical inclusivity. So a common point in the history of this mosque uh, so far is that as a personal experience of queer Muslims are always at the root of these initiatives because even in the case of France, the experience of the gay imam informed and inspired the project of the, of the current mosque. So the question I'm trying to answer today is how is pastoral care being developed for queer Muslim women in inclusive mosques? And we're gonna go through three different key points. The first one is we're gonna look at the different understandings that this mosque have of inclusivity, which is very much informed by different political imaginaries and are influence the kind of pastoral care which is being provided in these spaces. In a second part, we're gonna look more closely at the care practices within the mosque 
and how they participate in constructing the subjectivity of queer Muslim women. And in the last part, we're going to look at the obstacles that these women are facing while creating and developing their mosque, and very quickly, their ambition for the future. So in the United Kingdom, the inclusive mosque embraces an Islamic feminism, which is heavily influenced by the work of Amina Wadud, and defines inclusivity as radical inclusivity. I will not talk about the various sorts of Islamic feminism which are being developed globally because it's not the, really the goal of this presentation and it would take too long. What I am interested in, in in this presentation is how a particular kind of Islamic feminism, which will be the feminist Islamic feminism, sorry, uh, promoted by Amina Wadud and Sisters in Islam, manifests itself and is being implemented in a grassroots organization in a local mosque in the United Kingdom. So there has been an epistemological shift in the work of Amina Wadud these last 20 years. She previously understood women as part of a binary between men and women, and within an heteronormative framework where men and women had complementary qualities. And throughout the, two, the years 2000, Wadud progressively started considering gender as more fluid, and gender as a category of analysis conceptually allowed her to move away from complementarity of the sexes and compulsory heterosexuality to give room to what she calls sexual diversity. It is visible in the literature she produces, but also in her discourse. And in addition to Wadud's thought, there is also the influence of decolonial studies, which are very present in the discourse of the mosque members. The women running the mosque are characterized by a strong cultural and educational capital. They are highly educated, PhD level most of the time, and often identify a compulsory heterosexuality as a produce of modern biopolitics, systematically imposed on Muslim society through colonization. So therefore, critics of colonization and heteronormativity often go hand in hand in the discourse of this mosque. We can better understand the epistemological shift in the work of Wadud by looking at a speech she gave in the Inclusive Mosque in the UK in September 2017. And this is how she introduced her speech. I quote, Because I am personally located in this as a cisgender female, I have not written myself for every single word about whether or not I am equally inclusive in terms of other location from the LGBTQI community. And that is also contextually significant, I think, because working for what we used to call gender reform was primarily within the context of heteronormativity. I think it's important for me to let you know that I might slip into certain presumption of heteronormativity, because that is the way in which the gender movement was shaped, but it is not where it is finished. So this can explain the rationale of the mosque of radical inclusivity, the responsibility to care for the communities extended to sexual minorities amongst other ostracized groups whose identities and specific positionalities are taken into account. And you can see in this text on the right, which promotes an event of the mosque, I quote, all are welcome and we center the voices of Muslims who are women, non-binary, gender queer, black and disabled, especially. So, 
populations which are on the margins and who have difficulties to access religious spaces in the UK, especially. So radical inclusivity extends beyond gender and sexuality. Participants can share experience of being a marginalized minority within the Muslim community. However, this shared experience does not mean there is no existing prejudices between the individuals in this mosque. If we consider the experience of B, who is on the left here, B is an heterosexual cisgender man who has been occasionally leading the prayers and giving sermons on Fridays. And he's telling us, I quote, so I wasn't necessarily at the inclusive mosque because of his gender politics at the beginning. That just seemed like a nice addition. For me, what was more important was its non-sectarian nature. And that's because even though I grew up in a Middle Eastern country, I'm not from there. And in fact, I belong to a religious minority which falls under one of the Shia schools of Islam. And so in the Middle Eastern country, and this is something that I can't really speak too openly about there, is that my community is not allowed to practice freely. Because there are restrictions on Shia Muslims practicing in the country, and so because of that, like I always had this acute sort of sense that there was this part of me that I wasn't sharing. So even though I would lead prayer in university, for example, most of my friends didn't know that I was Shia. And so that's not, in fact, I also like saw a lot of anti-Shia sentiment being openly shared. And so because of that, I couldn't, in a sense, come out as Shia either. So I think uh, the similar vocabulary of hiding and not coming out is interesting in itself, as it triggered the research uh, for an inclusive space when he moved to the UK. So he lived in the UK for three years, I think. And it's especially interesting to compare this to what V, a queer Muslim woman with a Sunni background, had to say about the presence of Shia Muslim in light of her own experience as part of a sexual minority. And I quote, there are some forms I have recently found out of Shiatism, which for me is slightly concerning, but I'm not trying to put too much focus on it because if I do that, then I feel like the personal work that I'm trying to do with myself is going down with a route that I'm familiar with in terms of the judgment, the, you know, having an opinion and then just forcing it on everyone else kind of thing. So I'm trying to keep an open mind is what I'm trying to say, because what I want to take out of this experience is the good that comes out of it, which is really just folding on creating connection with people that might that have similar views and that are open to being vulnerable. So the mosque is therefore a space where inclusivity is not only postulated or thought of, it is performed despite prejudices sometimes. Muslims with different practices get together and engage in alternative practices in Shia or Sufi rituals to explore various ways of being Muslim ways of practicing that they wouldn't necessarily be exposed to in their local traditional mosque or at home, especially Shia rituals for that matter. So women in the inclusive mosque in the UK follow an ethics of justice similar to more conservative Islamic movement, but affected by an epistemological shift, as we've seen in terms of gender and sexuality politics, 
as theorized by Islamic feminist scholars. Beyond this, an ethos of radical inclusivity is being applied, which allow Muslims from different backgrounds to join the community. Things are very different in France, actually. In the inclusive mosque in France, when asked about the inclusion and care of Muslim sexual minority, El, which is who is an imam and one of the founder of the mosque, responded to me, I quote, there are two things. First, that within the mosque, there is no discrimination to be made on the basis of somebody's sexual orientation. And then we also have a theological discourse that we hold on this topic. And so, no, being Muslim and homosexual is not a problem. It is an incompatible. The Quran doesn't, it doesn't deal with this. So that's it. We also have this theological position that we affirm whenever necessary. That's it. But then, deep down, it's a bit like the matter of woman imam or, or the place of women, women should hold in Islam. We talk about it when it's necessary, but in the mosque, we don't talk about that. We really try to talk about spirituality. So it's really the same approach, actually, that we have with the matter of sexuality. We don't want to fall into feminism as much as we don't want to fall into LGBT revendications. It's really the same approach that we have on both topics. And so these two imams in France do not wish to talk about politics in the mosque, and especially not identity politics. This is a major difference with the inclusive mosque in the UK, which aims, at, as we've seen, to center marginalized individuals in its space. And to better understand this, uh, I think we need to consider that both uh, imams in France are converts, Muslim converts, from a white Catholic background. And they are really tend to talk about identity politics. And I think it is useful to see how they pursue Maghrebi culture, which would be the culture of most native Muslims in France. When describing her previous experience in Tarikas before opening the mosque, El, an imam and one of the founder, uh, mentions feeling uncomfortable. She says that there was, I quote, a mix, a confusion between religion and culture, as these were tarikas mainly from Maghreb, and there was really a mix. Well, it was culturally marked as Maghrebi, and it really made me uncomfortable because I converted to Islam because of the appeal of this religious tradition, but not at all for for form of culture in relation to another. It was really like everybody in Jalaba couscous and minty for lunch. And so K, which is the other co-founder, said, I quote, that is to say that we are, we are both converts. We are from a European culture, Western, which makes mixed congregation. For us, it's almost self-evident. So here we can see that L and K both distance themselves from Maghrebi culture and attribute some of their practices, such as mixed prayers, as related to their own European culture. This is coherent with the findings of other ethnographic studies throughout Europe, where a group of Muslim converts seek what they sometimes call a culture-free Islam. For example, Vanessa Vrunnajem in the Netherlands or Michaela Rogozen-Solter in Spain conducted ethnographic research with groups of Muslim, both converts and natives. 
And they show that converts tend to distance themselves from immigrants' culture and seek a practice of Islam in line with what they see as their own cultural values. So we need to ask ourselves what would be L and K cultural values. And I think in France, Republican universalism is a dominant political imaginary. It is a legacy of the French Enlightenment and lies at the foundation of French citizenship. And aside from the dominant political culture, from the dominant French culture, sorry, any ethno-religious particularism is seen as belonging to the private sphere, while in the public sphere, only a unique and universal citizenship ought to be expressed. And this is upheld by laïcité, French secularism, the separation between the state and religion, which makes almost impossible any political claim on religious grounds. So this is a theory, and in practice, it's even more true for Islam compared to Christianity and especially Catholicism, which enjoy more privileges, I would say, compared to Islam, which is still very much seen as uh, the religion of, you know, an outsider kind of religion by the state and by the political elite. So this might explain why imams, uh, both L and K, are reluctant to engage in identity politics, which are perceived as contrary to their values of universalism, and refuse to address political matters in a religious context. That is not to say that they have a nationalist understanding of religiosity, as they are both quite critical of the state discourse stigmatizing women, Muslim women wearing the veil. But this criticism takes place in the framework of a broader political imaginary, which has an impact on the way religious minority can express themselves. So if we look at the work of the philosopher Abdeno Bidar, who is a strong inspiration for this mosque, what he's saying regarding justice and Islam is similar to the work of Islamic feminists such as Wadud or Zibami or Saini. He has no doubt that equality between men and women can be achieved in an Islamic framework, and he opposes rigid fixed tradition to come back to an ethics of justice against all oppressions. But his rhetoric is also very much informed by Republican universalism, creating a rather ambiguous agenda. He calls for a secular, centralized political movement where progressive Muslims would oppose obscurantism thanks to French humanist values. And this political imaginary has a strong impact on the way Islamic feminism develops in France. It is not discussed in a religious space such as inclusive mosque, but is only talked about in one political organization for Muslim women who does not collaborate with the mosque. And where solidarities between religious and secular organizations flourish in the UK context, the mosque and feminist organization remain separated and isolated in France. Islamic feminism is just too political for inclusive mosques in France. So within the mosque, this political imaginary manifests uh, in a different understanding of inclusivity, inclusivity through universalism, where rather than paying special attention to the most marginalized, LNK choose to ignore the question of ethnic, gender, and sexual identities altogether. This is not without consequence consequences on the way pastoral care is thought of and conducted in the mosque. So now I want to look at the care practices within this mosque. And this mosque has 
two common points when it comes to pastoral care. The first is that they focus on building and sharing knowledge, which is relevant to the experience of their congregation. And they do so, this is the second point, in a democratic setting, challenging traditional hierarchy through education of all believers. And this is done through translation, translation from Arabic to English or Arabic to French, and explanation regarding the historical context um, during the prophet's life and the time of the revelation. So to quote Kay, one of the imam and co-founder in France, I quote, the idea is that in a most really, let's say, ideal, it would be for each believer to be able, after some training, to, in turn, to produce a discourse on an accept of the Quran or on a theme. It is really this logic, I would say almost democratic, actually, that we want to, that we want to alight because, highlight, because in our eyes, it is what Islam was about initially. And M, an imam and co-founder in the UK, says, I quote, Nowadays, people don't go to imams just to talk, just to ask if they can do something, to ask if it's allowed in the Quran. They look online and read for themselves. The imam's role is increasingly about pastoral care and counseling, and female imams are important because women are half of the community. Having trans imams or imams who identify as queer is important too. The democratization of being an imam, that's what it's all about. So, However, the different conception of inclusivity bring different practices of care. While the mosque in France focus on generic religious practices, discussing appropriate ways of fasting and praying in the sermons for everybody, the imams in the mosque in the UK tends to focus on social issues and often address issues relevant to specific experience of minorities. Pastoral care in the UK is based based on empirical evidence of what queer Muslim women need. And I will therefore focus now on the various practices designed for queer Muslim women in the mosque in the UK. The founders have conducted an ethnographic research from 2001 to 2005 and benefited from the continued involvement of queer Muslim women from diverse backgrounds in the mosque. Pastoral care relies on the dialectic between the religious knowledge of the imams and the experiential knowledge of queer Muslim women who attend the mosque. So just to give you an example, this is what V is saying. V is a member of the mosque. And here she explains what change in her understanding of the scriptures and how this is relevant to her experience as a queer Muslim woman. I quote, I knew what I was doing was sinful from a Quranic point of view, because the Quran suggests that homosexuality in Islam is based on the story of the prophet Lut, right? So I knew it was sinful, but I wasn't going to justify my action and change what the Quran say, if that makes sense. So for me, I would rather say I'm sinful than say the Quran is wrong. That was very important for me, is to not alter what the Quran is saying. The workshops have helped me try to make sense of some of that and has altered some of my views that I had previously about what does the Arabic actually say, literally, not having Arabic as a language that I was familiar with, others and through prayers, etc. Having others that have that knowledge about Arabic language in the workshop helps to interpret what the Quran is trying to get at, if that makes sense. 
So I'm at that stage now where I'm kind of taking a step back and saying, wow, actually, I didn't think about that. I didn't think about the fact that the story of Prophet Lut was not actually directly linked to lesbians, you know, or men having consensual sex, you know, that sort of variations of some of the language and the linguistic that go now with it. I'm starting to appreciate it now. So sharing the theological work of Islamic feminists, but also just considering the semantic complexities of Arabic can be especially of help for queer Muslim women who often feel guilt and shame over their personal aspirations and desires. But this requires to take into consideration their personal struggle. In the story of the Prophet Lut, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah is punished by God for their depravity. The dominant understanding in the Muslim world is a condemnation of homosexuality as men engage in sexual acts with other men. However, scholars such as Scott Kugel have argued that these intercourses were not consensual and understand this as a condemnation of rape. And it's this interpretation that V is referring to in this quote. So in the mosque in the UK, Muslim women can express themselves during monthly feminist discussion group, where they can read extracts of the Quran and hadiths and analyze their relevance in light of their personal experience. The Quran is often translated using gender neutral pronouns to refer to God. God is ungendered. He is not a patriarchal figure anymore. And many women express relief at the idea that God did not have a specific gender, which would make uh, male domination a divine principle. The idea of an ungendered God is also coherent with some Sufi theses, which are shared in the mosque, especially Ibn Arabi theory of the universe, unicity of the soul, all living creatures sharing one soul, regardless of their gender. The mosque also occasionally uh, hosts workshops and events, sexual health workshops, for example, addressing the vulnerability of sexual minorities in terms of mental and physical health, and using the Quran to promote medical treatments and fight prejudice, for example, prejudice against sexual disease or HIV-positive people. It can also be a space to open up about experiences of abuse, sexual abuse, in a community where these topics are not discussed and subject women to feeling shame and guilt on their own most of the time. There are also LGBT plus family workshops, which aim at preserving family bonds by sharing literature on Islam and homosexuality. So resources that mention Amina Wadud's work and Scott Kugel's work mainly and challenge the dominant cultural narrative uh, of coming out. Because in Western context, coming out as queer, as gay, as lesbian is celebrated more and more and is uh, uh, understood as a form of queer activism in itself. And so they're trying to raise awareness that it is not mandatory, coming out is not mandatory, and that in some contexts it can be dangerous and harmful. So they're trying to put some distance with the, this kind of normalization of coming out. They also recognize during this workshop and value queer families and queer solidarities as a different kind of kinship. So here we can draw on the work of Sabah Mahmoud's analysis of the mosque movement in Egypt. 
Purasov discussed Judith Butler's theory of bodily and speech performances as a condition of agency, signifying and resignifying structures of norms. So I would say that it isn't really between complying with or rebelling against one normative structure, because these mosques are cosmopolite mosques, cosmopolite environments, and there are a wide range of different normative structures at work here. But as Mahmoud theorized the body as a medium rather than a sign of the self, a medium for which a pious self comes to be realized. And Mahmoud um, especially takes the example of modesty and shyness who are being performed through wearing a veil and behaving in a shy way to then be internalized and constructing a pious self as a pious Muslim woman. I would argue that we can consider the collective body of the congregation as a medium for which collective virtuousness comes to be realized through inclusivity. Praying to someone of a different gender, getting confused with your gesture because you're following the lead of a Shia imam while being sunny, are performances that seek to accommodate the otherness rather than rejecting it. One can train themselves to accept an otherwise unusual presence, try new religious performances, and minorities who usually cannot access prayer spaces at all get a chance to become, to become pious subjects. So mixed prayers are not inappropriate ways of worshipping anymore, but to the contrary, ways of worshipping in an inclusive manner that makes the space open to all Muslims. What one of the mosque founders in the UK calls, I quote, a true Islamic utopia. So we can consider participation to these events and engagement in pastoral care as technologies of the self. Queer Muslim women construct themselves as part of a coherent social imaginary, where navigating their identity outside of heteronormativity allows them to build solidarity with other marginalized Muslim individuals. Caring for the margin is seen as, fulfill, as fulfilling, sorry, a duty, of, a duty of protection and strengthening of the Ummah, the larger, the wider Muslim community, against all systems of oppression. Their queerness is fully encompassed within their Muslimness and forms a coherent identity. So now I just want to look at the obstacles that these women face. And interestingly enough, both mosques in France and the UK face the same kind of obstacles. So funding a mosque, creating a space and caring for others requires certain resources that can be hard to get. And in line with uh, an obstacle that many women face while caring for others in modern society, the accumulation of duties between a professional life a family life and a spiritual life makes it harder for them to find enough time to perform all the tasks they are supposed to perform. So in France, L and K manage their mosque on their own. And I quote hell here. It's complicated because now I'm starting to have too many things to do. In fact, yeah, I tend to say that I accumulate several jobs, namely teacher, PhD candidate, imam. Yeah, it's really complicated to manage. And it's even an obstacle, actually, very much so. So the lack of time represents an obstacle to the development of the mosque, but also to their personal lives. And as Kay explains here, I quote, 
I know that now, if I wanted, I wouldn't be able to have children. Clearly, I have no time left. So if I had children, I would need to remove something from my schedule. So then there are solutions. It could be first to make the organization grow a bit so that other people could take responsibilities and discharge us of certain tasks. But it could be, and I don't think it could happen without it, working part-time only. In the mosque in the UK, a small group of women manage the mosque, which allows them more time and more support. However, while I was visiting the mosque, they sometimes had to interrupt their prayers to make sure the event was running smoothly. During Iftar, the responsibility of preparing food, giving out information to the congregation, cleaning the dishes, leading the prayers, all fell on the same group of women. So they are absolutely up to the task. But as a participant often says, I quote, I need more men to have my back. And in that sense, these feminist mosques are spaces which center women, but where there is an, clearly an increasing call for Muslim men, including queer Muslim main men, to engage in solidarity with women imam. Another obstacle is to the difficulty to find suitable spaces in big city centers a space which would be big enough for their growing congregation and accessible to disabled individuals. Accessible spaces are rare and a bit more expensive. And in France, for example, they often have to conduct the prayer in two separate sessions because the space is not big enough for everybody. Their ambition for the future is a common ambition as well which would be to find a permanent, stable building for the mosque, because at the minute they are itinerant mosques, to build lasting uh, solidarities and partnership within one neighborhood. And I think it would be also a way to see themselves as a mosque like all other mosques, you know, a normal kind of mosque. To, to have a stable building. And that's an aspiration uh, for a lot of women actually in this movement right now. So in conclusion, these two mosques different different understanding of inclusivity due to the different positionality of their founders and to the different political imaginaries they respond to. This trigger different practices of pastoral care, generic in France, and focused on lived experiences of individuals at the margin in the United Kingdom. These practices of care are part of the constitution of queer Muslim women's subjectivity. Their queerness allows them to build solidarity with other Muslims at the margin and therefore enact ideal of a true Islamic utopia. This observation need to be nuanced though, because as I said earlier, the mosque in the UK is seven years older than the mosque in France. Muslim women in France also face a more offensive political context, which impairs their bodily and speech performances and therefore their practices of care. They need to be supported. And this would be my references. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Benjamin. <laughs> I really enjoyed your talk enormously because it raises so many more general questions actually. To me personally, this is completely new and fascinating and it just shows you the dynamics as of how 
uh, people, uh, Muslims outside the Middle East or any other Muslim countries are actually engaging with the current issues and, and um, the change of generations, different perspectives. That's fascinating. And I wish you very good luck finishing your research and doing your PhD. Thank you so much. And for those who are, again, less familiar with our seminars, our seminars for this term are finished. We usually have two seminars each term on weeks three and six of the Oxford academic term. And it will be uh, advertised and sent out to all of you on the mailing list. And we hope to see some of you the following term and very soon in the flesh, I hope, you know, because <laughs> we, don't, we can't go on forever like this. But, but it also has, a, has that upside in that it has brought people, for example, from South Africa to participate. So uh, very much maybe we can run them in parallel, both in, in the flesh and in online. But uh, Benjamin, thank you so much and wish you good luck. Thank you very much. Sarah. Thank you everybody for participating.